you know, the book starts out with the best way to say no is how am I supposed to do that? And there's some people that pick that up really fast and others struggle with that. You know, learning how to construct a no oriented question and get out of the yes mode, nonsensical crap that is so horrible. But people are so addicted to it. That synaptic connection is hard to build. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, yo, happy Thursday morning. It's the TMBA podcast. We're back. Welcome, boss man. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. Just a few weeks ago on this show, you shared with us the story of a, a failed negotiation for a new car. That's right. The channels blew up on that one. People loved it. They love to hear. I think they like to hear the story of woe, of business woe from the boss man. But also just it's fascinating. A handful of listeners said that they were going to be sharing that audio with their sales teams, which I thought was awesome. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, unexpected. I just thought I'd share a little story about how I failed in a deal. Ian, there was one thing that you said that stuck with me since I heard that story, which was that you believe it was 100% your fault that the deal didn't happen. And that there's an alternate universe where you could have walked away with that car with exchanging zero money and that you and the guy that gave you the car would have been happy about that deal. I still believe that, yeah. You said it, and I thought, oh, he's just being theoretical. Mm -hmm. But today's guest believes that to be true as well, and has, in fact, spent a lifetime working on negotiating tactics, but in life-or-death situations. They were born during FBI hostage negotiations. This isn't Mercedes or Mazda. This is life or death. Today's guest is former FBI hostage negotiator, Chris Voss. These days, he has a company that teaches the approaches and techniques he honed in the field and how they can be applied to your business. Ian, I first heard about Chris through his excellent book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It, which was co-written with Tal Ross. I got so much out of this book, Ian, and I, you know, I read a lot of books. Like this, it stuck out. I was taking notes. I had to call the author, and it turned out to be a real privilege to be able to speak with Chris in person. Do you miss working at the FBI? No. Everything has its time, and uh, I had an awesome time there, and it came to a close, and, and this got started, and, and this is new ground. I mean, I, and I love plowing new ground and, and putting this stuff into business negotiations. This is fun every single day. Has the business world added anything meaningful to your approach that didn't exist while you were doing hostage negotiations? No, not really. It's more in the application of it. I mean, somebody threw an idea back at us that we didn't realize was that important. I did a conference two years ago with the National Contract Management Association in Boston. We cut a great deal with them. You know, they got me in for free because they knew how to negotiate. What'd they offer you? They bought books for everybody in, in attendance. They shot a video. They put the video up on the web. The video has been viewed a bunch of times. So great exposure. But then the really cool thing they did was 
I said, do you have a publication? Put me in your, in your publication. I said, we don't, but National does. And I said, ooh, give me a National's publication. And so we collaborated on an article. She said, hey, you know, you should apply the idea for a proof of life in business. The proof of life, just to clarify, is when the hostage taker puts the hostage on the phone, essentially. Right. In a kidnapping, yeah, you prove to me that you have my hostage. And then actually prove to me that if I pay you, you're going to release them. There's a secondary thing that a lot of people don't, in kidnapping negotiations, don't go for. You know they're going to do it anyway, but there's a strategic advantage for putting them through that. It wears them down. So proof of life in a business deal, in every business deal where there's potentially multiple vendors, there's a favorite and there's a fool. So they may be looking to do the deal or they may just be shopping for information. A lot of requests for proposals in a business world. They just want you to give them a ton of value for free, and they're not going to hire you because they're not going to change. They just want to improve their own processes. Right. Happens all the time. It's just an intelligence gathering mission. They're not going to hire anybody, let alone you. So you got to make sure, first of all, that they're not just on an information gathering mission to improve their own processes, which is why they love to solicit detailed proposals. Because people are constantly providing answers and they just scour your proposal for answers and they don't hire you. Now, the secondary issue is they may be looking for a vendor, but they got a favorite and you got to know whether or not you're the favorite or you're the fool. If you're submitting proposals blind, solicitations, if you don't know in advance you're the favorite, there's a really good chance you're, you're the rabbit. You know, the fool in the business world is called the rabbit. You're just you're there to only drive the price down on other people. You got to figure that out, too. That was probably the problem in the business world. And I didn't realize that as much until we got into it. And then we coached some people. And then this person in Boston said, you know, you guys should be doing proof of life of the deal. And we're like, wow, you know, that's been staring us in the face. And we had the skills for that. It's the only time you should ever ask the why question. Only time. Otherwise, you should never ask anybody why. Let's talk about that because that was one of my biggest takeaways from the book is to destroy why from your vocabulary and talk about how people are going to do things for you. Right. So how did you introduce the why all of a sudden? How does it work? Why creates defensiveness. Every hostage negotiation team in the world uses the same skills. So I have experience in every culture to start with. Secondly, having taught in, in business schools where there are students from all over the world, then we road tested them with people that grew up in India with people that grew up in the Middle East, with people that grew up in Latin America. So universally, the question why makes everybody on the planet defensive. We've all experienced the same thing. When we were little kids and we made a mistake, our parents looked at us and said, why did you do that? So from the moment we could walk and talk and pull stuff off a table, we've all been programmed that if somebody's asking us why, they think we did something wrong and we become defensive. So the only time that that's good is in an initial conversation with somebody who's soliciting you for a proposal, you look at him and you say, why would you ever do business with my company? You guys look great the way you are right now. I mean, you've got great relationships with competitors of ours that are phenomenal. Why in the world would you ever go with us? And one of two things happen. If they can't answer you, they're not going with you. You're the fool. Either there's no deal or you're the fool. But if they turn around and they say like, oh, no, you know, you guys have all these advantages. You guys do this. You guys do that. You guys do this. Well, you've just used their defensiveness to make your sales pitch. I'll stand up in front of a group of salespeople who are there because their boss told them to be. And I'll, instead of saying like, look, as a hostage negotiator, I've negotiated all over the world. I'll say, look, guys, why are you sitting here? Why did you take any time out of your day 
Why in the world would you listen to anything a hostage negotiator said? In a group of 20 people, four or five of the sharper people in the room will say, well, you know, because you've got great emotional intelligence skills. You've negotiated all over the world. Maybe your ideas in high stakes negotiations apply to us. Now, the people that are skeptical in the room are hearing their peers defend me. I don't have to say anything else. <laughs> uh, what that makes me think. There's a backstory on this show, which is that my business partner, he's a real shark when it comes to buying used cars from people. And so I'm sharing with him your theory of, you know, you want to go in with the 65% of the target price. To me, it's quite complex and sophisticated. Does that work the same way in these requests for proposals where the marketplace is a little bit more transparent than when you're walking in to say, buy somebody's used car and it's more of like sort of a one-on-one negotiation? You might get into that bargaining system and proposals, but there's a couple of universal principles that still apply even if you're not getting into numbers per se. You know, any given negotiation has about three rounds. Just a recognition that there's going to be an initial conversation. There's going to be some feeling out. That's the first round. Second conversation, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of it. And if we don't make some progress here, then it's over after the second round. You can be seduced by a great first round and have the second round turn into a real, you know, bare knuckle brawl. Right. Then the third round is, all right, so if we've gotten far enough in the second round, let's see if we can come up with what some people would refer to as a close, which is what's going to take us through this successful implementation of the deal. Like in real estate, you get a signed deal, you're maybe 30% done with what you have to do. Try and close that deal. You know, and no real estate agent out there, that's when they when they go into maybe their most anxiety time because signing the deal isn't even half the battle with all the things that will happen between signing and closing. And, and they're not getting paid till they close. We were in request for proposals with Verizon. Verizon had a favorite and a favorite got the deal. But in our information gathering process, we found out that fully 50 percent of the deals that Verizon signs do not get implemented because they get bogged down in the terms and conditions phase. Half. But their salespeople are counting their commissions when they sign the deals, which in my view is one of the reasons why they're probably half of them are just getting destroyed in terms and conditions because the people that are signing the deals are not thinking about how to implement them. They're thinking about their commission. Whereas in the real estate industry, they're not kidding themselves. They know that nobody gets a dime till this closes. And consequently, you know, business people, that's why they, you know, they want to, salespeople want to be compensated on gross revenue, not net revenue. <laughs> right. <laughs> because they don't care if the deal's profitable for the company. They just want the deal signed. So in other words, your method is much more focused on those first two interactions. They have to serve the third, which is the execution phase. Right. Looking at it, the whole thing as a project and nobody gets paid until... The money is actually distributed. This week's podcast is sponsored by Hrefs, who are offering one TMBA listener a chance to win a free annual subscription valued at almost $2,000. In order to take advantage and put your name into the hat for that, share this episode on your Facebook page and let us know about it. Hrefs is an absolutely essential tool set if you're looking to grow your traffic from Google. With Ahrefs, you can easily learn what people in your niche are searching for and how hard it would be to rank number one in Google for these searches. But the best part is, is you don't have to take our word for it. They have a 14-day risk-free trial, which lets you use all of their tools and data for two weeks, so you have nothing to lose. Just head over to Ahrefs.com 
dot com. That's A-H-R-E-F-S dot com. And you'll get 14 days to check out their software for free. And thanks again to Hrefs for sponsoring the show. Do people in your life always feel like you have the upper hand over them? Is there like a strange social dynamic that occurs because of your reputation? You know, there can't be initially until people get to know us. When you say us, you mean your firm? Right. Yeah. You know, I got a team and everybody on the team contributes. And your son is your CEO? Is that, is that accurate or co-founder? You know, he might as well be the co-founder. He keeps bugging me for equity in a company, which he will get. <laughs> but he has built it from the ground up right alongside with me. I mean, the book never would have happened without him. So anyway, getting back to your original question, what's it like to negotiate with me? We're in a negotiation last Wednesday in Boston. And one of the salespeople for the other side, after we were done, says, you know, here's what's fascinating about watching you. You are killing yourself to look out for the other side. I have never seen a negotiation where I watched anybody work so hard to look out for the interests of the other side. But ultimately not give them what explicitly they're asking for in so much that it would hurt you. Well, that's when you view negotiation as a zero-sum game. I actually asked them, I suspected they had more expenses they wanted to include in the deal that they were leaving out. I said, look, I, you know, I just want to make sure that you guys haven't got a bigger investment in this at this point in time and that you don't need to be compensated for it. So I was trying to give them more money. I was trying to give them more money to invest in a long-term relationship. This is a phenomenal partner, and I'm not going to be penny-wise and pound-foolish. If they got expenses, the long-term upside of this is huge. I'm not going to get stingy on expenses and sacrifice on down the line. So I was actually trying to give them more in the deal, in that particular deal. How did you cut the deal with your co-author? Did you just approach him with a blank check and say, you, we got to do this thing? Like, how do you sell that guy? It must have been an incredible time commitment for him to come work with you. First of all, it was different. Like Tal Ross. Tal Ross is the best business writer on the planet. He's co-author of Never Eat Alone, which is the best networking book ever written. I said, who knows Tall? I want to talk to him. Can I get an introduction? Everybody was said like, I don't know. People are scared to cold call. And I hit people up out of the blue. Not nine times out of 10, but about 75% of the time, you hit somebody out of the blue, they'll, they'll be willing to talk to you. And, but that success rate scares people, like one in four, no response. Well, I don't care. I approached him on LinkedIn. I said, hey, you want to do a book with a hostage negotiator? <laughs> he was intrigued. He hits me back. We have a couple conversations. But he says, all right, look, I love the idea. I don't know how far it'll go. It's the coolest thing I've ever heard. Here's my fee. I got a wife and kids. I do this for a percentage only. If you caught me before I had a wife and kids, but I got a family. I got people I got to provide for. And this is my fee and this is what I'm getting. And the fee was high. At that point in time, I said, I can't make that guarantee right now. A couple of other things evolved. And I came back to him and I said, look, I can do the guarantee. But I believe in meeting people's price. If you've got the right person, they're worth it. I'm not going to quibble with you over price. If I cut your price, you're not going to do a good job. Terms make the deal. If you're worth your price, you're getting it from me because you're worth your price. And he was more than worth his price. I think it's different from a lot of business books. I mean, our crowd is a very bookish crowd. Most business books, you sort of has a core point. It gets reinforced, you get pumped up about it, and then you go implement it in your life. This book, you get all that in the first chapter, and then you're assaulted with a very sophisticated, complex way 
of behaving with people. And it's really compelling, but I also feel intimidated by it. Do you get the sense that your readers have any difficulty in implementing your strategies? I feel like I got to workshop it, honestly. I feel like I got to get a friend and sit down and practice. I can't just read this book and know this stuff. It feels like it, I have to behave in this way in order to really, really get it. Yeah, building new habits is hard. You're building electrical pathways in your brain. But see, the interesting thing about that is the learning curve is only steep at the beginning. It levels out really fast. You know, a new habit can be so hard at the beginning that people give up early when they don't know how close they are to, to reaching a peak. Your observation is interesting. I think the skills probably kind of break down into basically sort of like three areas. You'll have a natural inclination. One of those areas is going to come really fast to you. and other areas is going to be new, new wiring in the brain. And it's going to be harder for you. You know, the book starts out with the best way to say no is how am I supposed to do that? And there's some people that pick that up really fast. And others, the labeling approach or the, the little more in-depth listening for emotional cues. Some people struggle with that more. Other people get it really fast. You know, learning how to construct a no-oriented question and get out of the yes mode, nonsensical crap. That is so horrible. But people are so addicted to it. That synaptic connection is hard to build. Ian, let's zoom in here because this idea of yes versus no questions is an important part of Chris's philosophy. And it overturns a lot of the traditional sales thinking that you're supposed to get people to sort of say yes to something small, and then you gradually ratchet up your levels of commitment until finally you know, they sign up for the project or whatever. This is how I uh, convince my girlfriend to be with me. So it starts with like a little first date, yes, move in, yes, yes, yes. Eventually, all these yeses add up to something that she probably should have said no to. One of the reasons why you don't ask yes questions is that just because you get that commitment doesn't mean that you're going to be able to execute that project. So if you can be clever and convince your girlfriend to say, yes, I will be your girlfriend, she's still got to execute that project, right? She's got to, she's still got to be your girlfriend. And maybe, you know, she'll start to second guess the deal that she cut with you at the beginning. And this is, I think, a really insightful part of Chris's philosophy, which is what he's suggesting is that we approach deal making in a way that not only we get a great deal, but that that deal is sustainable and we can execute it. Now, on a more simple level, one way we can do that is by asking no-based questions as opposed to yes-based questions. And the fundamental difference is this. When you ask somebody a yes question, Ian, you're asking for a commitment. And commitments make people anxious. I can only imagine how my girlfriend feels. Very anxious. You know the sales calls, though, where people call you up and you're like, Mr. Schoen, uh, you know, and they're sort of baiting you in to this series of yeses. And like, you know, you have to agree because they're like, sort of like, do you regularly mow your lawn, Mr. Schoen? Yes. Like, well, yes. And now all of a sudden it's like, okay, what are you starting to think? I'm starting to think, well, the question eventually is, don't you think that your wife would be much happier if you didn't spend five hours a week mowing the lawn and you spent it with her? Yes. Okay. Well, my service mows your lawn. It's $49 a week, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. So even if you feel like the yes is the right answer, as you say it, you're committing to things. You're not fully confident about what you're committing to yet. I mean, how could you? It's just a question. And so you get anxiety about that commitment. So the idea that Chris introduces is that no is actually your friend. No is a safe place where you can agree. It's like an island 
in the middle of uncertainty. And it's fascinating how he puts it to work. He gives a really simple example on his blog. So let's just say that I want to go to a restaurant with you and I know the specific place that I want to sit. And I want to convince you to sit there with me. So I'm kind of to cut a little deal with you, Ian. Okay. Let me ask you questions in two different ways. The first is, hey, Ian, is it okay if we sit in the reserve section of the restaurant? Mm, yeah, I guess. So that's a yes-oriented question. Not to say that it's bad, but here's a better way to approach it. Would it be horrible if we sat in this section, Ian? No. I mean, why would it be bad? There you go. <laughs> right. We can at least agree on this, that it wouldn't be horrible. And again, in the book, there's many examples of how you can make this distinction of yes versus no. Go to work for you and your business deals. Back to the show. There's always room in life for Well, it's a closed-in question where the answer that you're driving for is no instead of yes. Okay, this is exactly the opposite of what my sales training books have told me. Right, yeah. And I'm, I'm even looking at a post on LinkedIn today where somebody had this new has this approach and it says, and best of all, it gets you in the yes mode right away. And people just get all excited, like, oh, yes, woo-hoo-hoo. You know, and that's the crazy thing about the word because you will be addicted to hearing it. But the minute I try to get you to say yes, you're like, wait, 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 where's this going? What, what, what do you lead me into? Have you got a few minutes to talk? That question, people go like, oh, my God, a few minutes. What do you want? It's like a micro commitment that creates anxiety. Exactly. And people do it to you because they're trying to get that micro commitment. And then they're going to try to walk you down a path of micro commitments. They call it tie downs. And they say it like this. You get all these tied downs and you put them in a position that if they don't accept your proposal, it rejects everything they've set up to now. I was with Brandon, my director of operations. We're coming out of a building the other day and I said, you can't get a flat, unvarnished yes out of anybody under any circumstances. And he said, you know, I, I still haven't completely wrapped my mind around that. And we're on our way out and there's a security guard at the front door and he worked for Allied Security and he's sitting there with a shirt that says Allied Security on it. And so I, I was standing in front of the security guard and I said, really, watch this. And I looked at this guy and I said, do you work for Allied Security? And he went, what if I do? <laughs> and I looked at Brandon and I said, see, he's got it on his shirt. So why is no so comforting to us? The act of saying no, we feel we've just protected ourselves from something. And having just protected ourselves, the anxiety goes away. People misinterpret, you know, they say teenagers won't take no for an answer because your kids won't, you tell them no and they won't let up on you. And then ultimately they get something out of you. My view is it's not that they won't take no for an answer. Cause I had a teenager, my son, who's getting ready to be 32 when he was 17. He said, dad, can I No. But having, I look back on that experience, the minute I said no, feeling I protected myself, then I would say, all right, now what was it that you wanted? Once we say no, we're actually more persuadable. Do you mind recalling the story of the that's right epiphany? Because it's related in a way. And it reminds me of teenagers too, because you mentioned a story in your book where teenagers will often hear a persuasive argument and they'll go, yeah, yeah, you're right. And maybe they'll even do what you want like briefly, but you're not actually getting a deal done, which is you know sustainably changing their behavior, persuading new behavior in them. And this is something that you stumbled upon. You mentioned in the Philippines, which is a place I've lived for many years of my life. So I'm curious if you could retell that story briefly. 
we had a kidnapping negotiation where the bad guys wanted $10 million for the American hostage. And they didn't say it was ransom. They said it was for economic harm done to the south of the Philippines for over 500 years of oppression from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans. I mean, all this nonsense, which then I, I love to say to business people, you never had anybody make up stuff that did, had nothing to do with the situation in your arguments, did you? <laughs> Nobody in your world does that. You know, somebody throwing something in your face that happened five years ago or a year ago. Or, but we're in the middle of this case and, and, and we tried every bit of logic that we could. And I, what's an American got to do with what the Spanish did 500 years ago? You know, what does what happened six months ago have to do with what we have going on today in a business negotiation? But we, you know, we just went round and round. And at the time, I didn't realize what kind of a, a breakthrough it would be. And so a guy I'm coaching, I said, and I remember The World According to Garp was the title of a movie that stuck out to me, or old Robin Williams movie. So I said, we're going to do The World According to the Terrorist on the next phone call. And we're going to repeat all this bizarro stuff this guy's saying, everything that happened and how he feels about it. And we're going to so fully and completely summarize this guy. He's going to feel we've summarized everything in his brain so fully and so completely that the only thing he could possibly say is that's right. He's going to have nowhere to go. And my guy did that. We got back on the phone two days later and my guy did a full on summary of everything for 500 years. What do those statements look like? It's pretty much just what the other person has said. It's not that hard. So we said, you know, you're not looking for ransom for the American, you're looking for war damage because of economic oppression, for 500 years of oppression from colonial powers, from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans. And it's been unjust and there've been violation of the fishing rights. And, and you're not actually Filipinos anyway, you're Moros, you're, you're a separate oppressed nation that's being oppressed by a government that's being propped up by the American government. So we just full on summary of everything that this sociopath had said. When my guy was done, there's a moment of silence and, and that sociopathic terrorist on the other end of the line, a murdering, raping kidnapper, is susceptible to empathy. And he said, that's right. And it was a moment of silence. And then my guy says, let's talk again in a couple of days. And he said, OK, they hung up. And we went from $10 million to zero in that conversation. We summarized on an issue they were talking about, which we knew to be nonsense. And as soon as we got a full-on summary, it went away. What's the difference between yes and that's right? Well, there's three kinds of yeses. There's commitment, confirmation, and counterfeit. And since you're always trying to get me into the micro-commitment yeses that'll tie me down, I get really good at counterfeit yes, because I just want to hear you out and hear what you have to say, be enlightened by you, get some intelligence from you, and move on. Yes is one of the two great false agreements. You're right is the other. Now, that's right is actually we save that's right when we feel that we've heard something that was complete truth. And again, it was Tall's insight. Tall says, you know, you're creating a subtle epiphany on the other side. It's also the trigger point. Stephen Covey always gave us the advice, seek first to understand and be understood. And we thought that was because Covey was a nice guy. Well, no, Covey's a mercenary. <laughs> Covey wanted to be understood and he knew that you weren't going to listen until you feel that you were heard out. Covey wants to get his point across. He wants you to get your point across. So let the other side feel heard out. How do you know when they feel heard out? They only say that's right when they feel heard out. It's the trigger point where they're now willing to listen. And when they're willing to listen, that's when you get the good deals done. That's essentially the thesis. Yeah. Or half the time, if you'll just shut up. I had a lawyer tell me this 
once it was negotiating with a potential client who wanted the lawyer to reduce their fee. And so the lawyer was getting ready to reduce the fee because they wanted the business. And then she just summarized what the other person said. And the other person said, that's right. And you know what? Let's make this deal. I'll give you your ask. And made the deal. So they're most inclined, having felt hurt out, to actually agree right after then, too. And you, and you might not have to say anything else. This is essentially this idea of sort of diffusing fear rather than presenting opportunity. Because entrepreneurs can tend to be so optimistic. So you're like, we can do this thing together. You're going to make so many more sales. And a lot of what you're pointing out in the book is that what's holding people back from the deal, that's where the wins are to be had. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's not fair or realistic. It's something called prospect theory and the fear of loss. And Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize over this idea that the fear of loss is the outside driver, not the prospect of gain. So if you can address that, and understand what somebody's fear of loss is, and then help them avoid that loss. Some recent data, I said that 70% of buy decisions are made not to accomplish a gain, but to avoid a problem, which then makes the whole sales proposition completely different. It flips it on its head, completely on its head, because your value proposition might be in the loss you're trying to avoid, not the efficiencies you're trying to increase. You make 20% more money if you use this. That's a gain scenario. If you don't use this, it's costing you 20% a day. Oh, wait a minute. I need this because I'm losing 20% a day. I got to avoid that loss. And many times it's the exact same scenario just in how it's presented, which then is crazy, but it's human nature. I can imagine all these sales situations in my head like, you know, do you want to change your mailing list software? And the answer is invariably no. Cool. Now we're at no. But did you know that you're potentially losing up to 20% a day by not having done so? That's like sort of flipping how a traditional sales process would go. Yeah, exactly. I was talking to a company a couple of years ago, and what they, they sold as executive compensation, they sold great retirement packages. And so they would say, look, just let us take a look at what your retirement package is now, how you're managing that fund. We're not going to make any pitch. We just want to see if we could do better based on our track record. And then they'll come back to the company and they'll say, if you stay with your current package, here's how much it's costing you every single day. Because then the status quo has got to be the enemy. The status quo represents a loss. And they could have said, we'll make 20% more for you every day. But instead they said, don't do anything. It's going to cost you this much each and every day you do nothing. And you plant that in somebody's head, then, then that eats at them. It burrows at them. They can't get away from that because they feel the loss each and every day. So they make the buy decision based on the avoidance of the loss. When you see your students take the book, start to implement it in their business, are there some big wins that they make at the beginning? Like you were mentioning, like the learning curve is really steep at the very beginning. How do you see it manifesting? It manifests really on three levels. The biggest issue is the savings in time. If you stop wasting time, your success rates and start jumping through the roof. Some of it is wasting time on people you shouldn't be talking to who are never going to deal with you. You know, cutting those out. A lot of the change in behavior is, look, if you're not going to make a deal with me, that's what proof of life is about. There's no deal to be had for me. I'm going to move on and I'm going to work with somebody else. A lot of people in personal relationships, they're just having better conversations with each other because they're trying to listen to the other side a little bit more rather than just solve the problem and move on. Would it be fair to frame up sort of the thesis of your book that you need to understand emotions in order to get big deals done? 
Well, understand and, and not ignore them. Just be aware of them. Like this whole idea that emotions are bad for business. It's negative emotions that are bad for business. And so, first of all, making drawing that distinction, you can't turn your emotions off. There's a lot of effort to try to turn your emotions off. You're as capable of turning your emotions off as you are capable of controlling your breathing. So just recognizing that is the first issue. And then understanding that the fear is going to be the outside driver. All right, so what if it's the outside driver? What can we do to change that? That's where the hostage negotiation skills come in. I know how to reach in your brain and there's a dial on your fear emotion and I know how to dial it down. That's what I did as a hostage negotiator. And there's also another dial on your brain where the positive stuff is, where the stuff you love, the stuff you're enthusiastic is. I know how to reach in and hit that and dial it up. Now, if I do that in an inauthentic way, it's going to catch up with me. But if I do it in a way that helps you, now I'm looking out for you. Now you're willing to collaborate with me because you don't, you don't have to have your guard up. I'm not going to stab you in the back. And then, and then because I want a long-term relationship. Because I'm a, a mercenary, I want a long-term relationship. It seems like these ideas have even more potential in the business world because there's not these sort of binary outcomes, you know, hostages released or not. It's like the pie could potentially get bigger for all these parties who are finding well, one of the things I think the theme of the book, Never Split the Difference, is splitting the difference is sort of a dumb idea because you get this like hybrid outcome and you don't get this like really big win-win. You get a little bit of both. And so what you're suggesting is that sort of the pie can be bigger for everybody if we understand what's triggering these decisions. Right. The pie can be bigger for everybody. And then, and then the other crazy thing, too, is understanding what laughing all the way to the bank really means. I ask a lot of people, like, would you work to increase the pie if that meant you got a smaller slice? And most people are like, no, why am I knocking myself out to make the pie bigger? Well, just for an example, my former boss wrote a book by himself. And he got 100% of his advance. Now, I wrote a book as a team effort and pulled other people in and brought a superstar like Tal Ross in. I got less than 100% of the advance because I had a partner. I had multiple partners. My smaller slice of my pie is net take home higher than my former boss's 100%. So I increased the size of the pie. My take home pay was higher, but it was a the percentage was down, but who cares what my percentage is as long as I'm making more money than anybody else? What surprised you most about this process? It seems like everybody who reads your book is compelled to give it a five-star review. It just seems like you really, you hit something in, out there that has really resonated with people. I got a great co-writer who made a readable book. It's easy to absorb. He also is a smart enough guy that every now and then there'd be a hole in what, what we were talking about. And it, Tal would say, look, you got to address it. This is not as obvious as you think it is. What was one of those? Do you remember? Is there an idea that he helped pull out of you? The whole idea of talking more about what leverage is, it's just a completely emotional concept. I mean, the first thing you got to do as a hostage negotiator is let go of the idea of leverage at all. Why? Because who's got a leverage in a, in a bank robbery? Who's got leverage in a kidnapping? What's an immediate member of your family that you're close to? Who could we pick for, for a kidnapped victim in your family? Have you got a sibling, a parent? A sister, sure. All right, I kidnap your sister. Who's got the leverage? You. That's what you think, right? Everybody responds like that because that's all emotional leverage. But wait a minute, I thought cash was king. Who's got the cash? Me. <laughs> yeah. Not only that, a kidnapping, it's not a seller's market, it's a buyer's market. Who am I going to sell your sister to other than you? So you're 
potentially facing jail time, for example. So that's a piece of emotional leverage that you could be fearing that I could bring up to you. Well, the first issue is you got to figure out what the other person's emotional leverage is. If there's kidnapping someplace, the guy ain't going to jail. That's why there's no kidnapping in the United States, because kidnappers go to jail in the U.S. We don't have a kidnapping problem. If you live in Mexico, you figure, if not you, somebody in your immediate family going to get kidnapped. That's a reality. So a kidnapper's fear is not going to jail. But you have to understand what the fear is. How do you find that out? A kidnapper wants to get paid. They not only want to get paid, but interestingly enough, they want to get paid within a certain time frame. And as soon as you understand what that time frame is, then with you know a tactical application of empathy, which in that instance is going to be very sophisticated, passive aggression, all I got to do is knock you out of the time frame. Now I got you because you're going to get rattled. And since I'm doing it in a very passive way, kidnapper wants to control the negotiation. A kidnapper is somebody who makes threats and intimidates and threatens you with the loss of the deal, which interestingly enough is exactly what a procurement negotiator in a supply chain operation does. Do business people understand tactical empathy? I don't think so for two reasons. Primarily because empathy has been equated with weakness. It's not weakness. And the tactical application of it gives you enormous strategic advantages. A lot of business people don't want to recognize that emotions are present in business or that empathy could be a competitive advantage. What's an example of a way that you've seen your business clients employ a tactical empathy? All right. um, Negotiation between two companies, two private sector companies in D.C. on a government contract, but neither one of the players are on the implementation of the contract. They're both private companies and a relationship is going down the tubes. Big contractor, subcontractor, subcontractor thinks they're getting a short end of the deal and their implementation is horrible and they're going to lose the entire deal. My client is with the big company and they sit down and they could have said, look, the logical approach is step up your game or we're going to lose this business. Whatever your end is better than zero. And if you don't stop screwing up, you're going to get zero. That's the logical approach. Instead, they sat down and I said, you know what? We look like bullies. We look like we're not looking out for you. We're the big government contractor. You're the subcontractor. You feel like that we're pushing you around, that we don't care about you, that we don't care what happens to you long term, that we're greedy. They did what we refer to as the accusations audit. What are all the negatives that are going through the other side's head? And let's just put them on the table. We don't say yes or no to any of them. We just go off full on recognition. It's actually exactly what I did with the kidnapper in the Philippines. You think this, you think this, you think this, you think this. Not a, neither agreement nor disagreement. And after the first round of negotiations, she sits down and bad mouse or seemingly bad mouse the heck out of their own company. At the end of the meeting, the other side says, we appreciate you saying that. Let's schedule another meeting. Three meetings later, the deal is fixed. The relationship is fixed. Everybody's happy. And the big company pulls an extra million in profit. So not only did they not concede profit, they increased their bottom line by $1 million and got a better relationship. What do you find challenging in negotiations even after all your experience? You know, sometimes I'll get caught up in my own head. I'll get caught off guard by the other side. And, and, and I'll, run in, I'll run into people that are just, they're just so short-term focused. I find getting somebody out of short-term 
thinking that it's it's a dog eat dog world. And so the, the best thing I got to do is I got to get as much as I can right now. And that's really common. And people get closed minded. You know, you try real hard to help, help people see the light. And every now and then I'll try to explain. I'll try to use logic on people. You know what I see to be eminently logical and it's an utter waste of time. And I, I keep getting reminded that by myself by making a mistake. I think about this image that you brought up that's for some reason, it's like really memorable, which is this idea of every negotiation is you holding secret cards. I almost thought of it like a bit of a battle or, you know, like a tug of war. But this image of like, I've got secret cards that I'm sort of in many ways committed to not sharing with you. And now your role is to have them be revealed in a one way or another. One example you brought up is the example of the Christmas tree. There was a story of a husband and a wife arguing about whether or not they should get a fake Christmas tree. One of our models is never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. So husband wants an artificial tree, wife wants a real one. And the husband's a student in my class and he's armed with my negotiating techniques. And he's got all his practical reasons. Doesn't catch on fire, buy it once, always know what it's gonna look like, don't have to waste time searching for a tree every year. I mean, practical reason after practical reason. And wife is just not hearing it. So he decides to use a label. You know, it seems like is a label. It triggers contemplation. It opens people up. Actually, as simple as that is, very specifically designed to hit the brain in a very specific way. I taught him, you know, if someone's acting what you perceive to be irrationally, dig into the reason it's deep down someplace. That's why they're not articulating it. So wife's acting irrationally. She won't listen to reason. It's got to be something buried. What could it possibly be? So he says, seems like. You had real trees growing up? And she says, yeah, yeah. And I get such great memories of the smell of a real tree in the holidays with my brothers and sisters. And the smell of a tree to me brings back all these phenomenal memories as a, as a family. And I want our kids to have those same memories. And he went, let's get a real tree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, dig into why the other side wants what they want. They may actually have a better idea. You got to be open to hearing them out. And finding out where they're coming from, because, you know, the, the hidden cards, that hidden card they're holding might be the key to everything that you need. What are the most reliable ways to get those cards on the table? First of all, get, let the other side talk first. They're going to be fooled into believing you actually want to hear what they have to say. <laughs> and you should. One of my favorite phrases, I, I love borrowing phrases from great negotiators. Ned Coletti, uh, former general manager of Los Angeles Dodgers. And he took the Dodgers from worst to first in his first year. So Ned is a listener and he likes to say there's 90 seconds of solid gold in every conversation. Ned wants to get you talking because there's 90 seconds. If I can get you talking, there's going to be 90 seconds of solid gold. I got to shut up and get you talking in order to get that. And, and that's the first thing in any negotiation. It's going to be there if you just let the other side know that you're not there to attack them. You actually want to hear what they have to say. Because at some point in time, something's going to come out of your mouth that the light bulb's going to go on over your head and you're going to say to yourself, that's exactly what I've been waiting to hear. And then because you haven't attacked them, you're actually trying to make a deal. Then when you bring it back up, instead of them saying to themselves, aha, I got you, they say to themselves, all right, that's the key to our deal. We collaborate on this point. We make everything happen. There's no way we can summarize this book in an hour, which is not the case for 99% of business books. I'll just put that on the air. So you got to read the book, but let's try. 
Because I feel like a lot of the conversation has essentially been, there's an EQ approach, there's a tactical empathetic approach, you have to get the cards on the table. But then after you've done all this stuff, you have to both say no to terms that you're not willing to agree to. And then you have to be tough and drive tough terms that are going to benefit you. So how do these two approaches mix? Because they sort of seem like now once you've been Mr. Nice Guy and they've said everything that they want and you really understand what they want, well, how do you drive a hard bargain at that point? All right. So negotiation is not compromise, but it is about high value trades. So it's understanding really what's valuable to you. Now, by definition, there are going to be things that have different value to each side. And that value is going to probably be triggered by terms. You know, terms make the deal. So let's talk about what those terms mean to you. And I'm not going to make any assumptions. I'm going to make a hypothesis about how we can get into some high value trades. You know, the, the efficiencies of scale. So then I will be adamant that the high value terms I got to have or I can't do the deal. I got other better opportunities. Now, I'm, some of those that don't mean that much to me are going to mean a lot to you. So what we should be driving hard on terms that are important to us and then listen for the terms that are important to the other side. And if we got a good trade in there, now we'll make the deal. And then, of course, my desire is for you to be in business for a really long time. So do you want to reinvent the, the relationship wheel with every vendor you deal with? How much time is going to be lost trying to replace me? There's going to be a value in that. If I'm a stable partner and I'm looking out for your long term interest, which is often why it's hard to get somebody to change vendors because they got a stable vendor. Right. So it's it's understanding where the high value trades are and what I, what I'm really trying to get. Like I'm trying to get more subscribers to my newsletter, and I'm trying to get visibility in high visibility areas. And that was the National Contract Management Association deal was I got visibility with twenty thousand people when I was speaking to a conference of three hundred. If I got all three hundred subscribers, that's nice, but I want a shot at twenty thousand. Right. Which I got. So to me, that's a high value trade. What do you hope people take away from reading your book and listening to your ideas? Negotiation is not a zero sum game. If you really open your mind up to emotional intelligence possibilities, like a negotiation could be this awesome thing that makes you and everybody around you better off. No one should be afraid to negotiate with you because you're, you know, you're really trying to make a better deal. It could be a lot of fun. It's not that hard to learn. It's not a horrible thing. It's not it's not the aggressive, attacking, assaulting negotiator. Negotiation shouldn't be a boxing match. Everybody thinks if they get into a negotiation, they're going to have to deal with the attacking negotiator. And so people, that becomes a definition for negotiation. You know, that's, that's not good negotiation. Warren Buffett's a great negotiator. Oprah Winfrey's a great negotiator. H.R. McMaster, a great negotiator, the current national security advisor for, for Donald Trump. General Kelly, I think, his chief of staff now. Great negotiator. These guys are not out smashing people. They're making stuff work. That's what negotiation's about. So negotiation doesn't have to be this horrible thing. And it can be fun, and it's not that hard to learn. You don't need a PhD in rocket science to figure out how to increase your emotional intelligence. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, and I know our listeners will appreciate it. I really enjoyed the conversation. A pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Hey, many thanks again to Chris Voss and absolutely encourage everyone to check out the book, Never Split the Difference. If you're looking to get a little bit more of the content, I'd also like to point out that there's lots of useful tips, 
at Chris's company's website. So you can go check out his blog and get a sense for the details of some of these techniques at blackswanltd.com. So show notes, links, link to buy the book, all that good stuff posted at tropicalmba.com slash never split the difference. You know, Dan, I just want to throw this in here, but it doesn't always have to be about business, right? It can just be about going to get ice cream after dinner. That's the reason to read this book. It's a fundamental skill. And this is not one of these business books. It's got a, a clever little idea like, you know, focus, right? I'm not clowning on these books. I love these books, right? I love a book that has a simple idea and then gives you 150 pages worth of reasons you should believe the idea, encounter all the objections you're going to have about the idea, and gives you inspiration to go execute on that idea. This is not that book. This is a book that goes right to the heart of a fundamental skill in business that I feel many of us are severely lacking in, and that can have a big impact. But here's the other side of that value is that it's no walk in the park, that you can't read this book and it just be like, oh, I'm so inspired, I'm gonna change my business tomorrow. You just It's not gonna work like that. I think you have to workshop this book, you have to spend some time with it, and you're gonna have to practice. You're gonna have to put these things into practice in conversations and deals. You're gonna have to roll up to the proverbial driveway and try to buy that Mercedes. You're gonna fail sometimes. But here's the thing, everybody's cutting deals all the time, like you said, Ian. So, yep. It couldn't hurt to brush up on your skills, and this is about as good as it gets. So again, it's Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference. Go check it out on Amazon. It's incredible how affordable books are for how much value you can get out of them. I'll tell you that much. All it takes is your time. <laughs> All right, boss man. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll be back, as always, next week, next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. See you then, boss man. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.